Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 53. I'm your host, Curtis Payne. I've said that twice in all 53 of these, and every time I listen to the podcast, I go, you know, I really ought to introduce myself in case you don't know who I am. So that's who I am. I'm Curtis Payne. This is my podcast, Tantric Conversation. It's a show I do in which I talk to people I feel like talking to, and I talk to them exactly how I feel like talking to them at the time. It's not interviews, so people call it that. It's not journalism. It's just a fucking podcast, people talking. And uh, this time, it's my man Terry Ray. And uh, I've known Terry Ray sort of... He was one of the grown-ups when I was a kid, uh, hanging around Libby Hill Park with the Churchill Porch Club, Chuck Wren, and all those guys drinking red, white, and blue beer and playing frisbee golf. But, uh, you know, over the years, I've been aware of him having been involved in a lot of other things, and at some point, we became friends on Facebook, and we've been sort of enjoying circling the same political issues, I think, is what I said in the podcast. We've been both very interested in the diamond and the issues going on in Shaka Bottom with trying to build a stadium there. And honestly, for me, it isn't even about baseball stadiums. It is about somebody trying to just do some shit that they want to do with the handful of people who all just want to enrich themselves doing it and to do it in our face and to do it clumsily and obviously and stupidly and expect people to just let it happen just manipulate the city however they want i think terry sees it the same way we talk about it a lot um when he came over here he handed me a outline of things that he's been involved at in in case I actually wanted to be organized and do research and it reads as follows 1971 WRNL AM FM 1972 to 1983 the Biograph Theater which no longer exists but was on Gray Street it was a really cool art theater 1976 to the present Frisbee Golf 1977 Commissioner of the Fan League of Softball 82 Handbill Trial uh, that was about hanging handbills on uh Telephone poles and stuff. We talk about that a little bit. 1982 to 84, color radio. I don't remember. We didn't talk about that, I don't think. 1983, the present freelance art writing, photo, video. 84, ran for city council. 1985 to 93, slant, one of the first kind of countercultural zines to get any traction around here. I also remember that. And uh, 93 on Mondo Softball. Uh, Terry is he's a great Richmond... Uh, Rebels, a town crier. I don't know what you would, how you, you know, there's something that feels like a uh, historical context to it, and there's something that's also, you know, hippie, um, yippie and hippie kind of stuff involved, and uh, and there's also just something that's very distinctly Richmond, uh, a, a Richmond city guy, a fan guy. Um, you know the type if you know the type. And um, I enjoyed talking to him a whole lot. Um, this, the third Sunday, the third, he is doing this uh, ring around the diamond thing. So if you want to keep the diamond, you want to sort of, I mean, this is kind of a referendum, I guess. They're not really going to have an actual referendum vote. So if you show up at the diamond on August 3rd and then circle it with a bunch of people and sing Kumbaya, maybe they will understand how much we want to keep the existing diamond, which is a great piece of architectural 
art and fully functional, perfectly good. Um, and that how much we don't like being pushed around by a handful of inept politicians and uh, rich people. That uh, this is everybody's city, Richmond's everybody's city, and it would be so much cooler if they would just allow organic growth to happen. Stop dropping bricks on the anthill. I've probably worn that metaphor out, but that's still how I see it. And, um, you know, I mean, Richmond came to be, I mean, it was fucking like that to begin with. People just came and said, I, I, I take this, I claim this land and you Indians can beat it. And that kind of shit's been going on for a long time and people are still trying to do that. But now we have the internet and we have social media and perhaps we can shame and embarrass and otherwise, um, upend the uh, doofuses that are just trying to enrich themselves at the expense of the taxpayer to do another poorly planned, poorly researched, poorly designed, giant civic project of which we have had an absurd and tragic history. Sixth Street Marketplace, Main Street Station, just to name a few. I don't have much confidence in those guys, but I do have confidence in Richmond as a city, which, if possibly left alone and supported little by its elected leaders could really flourish so uh without further ado let's get on to terry ray and talk about all of that and and more all right rolling any discussion beforehand you like to just this is tantric conversation it's very groovy okay we're just like whatever happens happens right you know right yeah um and i when i'm i have fallen back on getting interviewee when I'm mm-hmm. doing it, um, which really isn't my goal, but like when I get stymied or stifled, I start trying to ask questions and whatever. But it's not supposed to be journalism. It's really supposed to be like personality, mm-hmm. personality to personality with well, me as the common When I was young, I was interviewed a lot. For what? Uh, when I was at the Biograph. Oh, right. Uh, and so I had the Biograph generated publicity because of, of movie theaters do mm-hmm. and must. Uh, so I had the regular people who were reporters in town to talk to, mm-hmm. but also students, mm-hmm. VCU students would, you know, that was an easy interview across right. the street is go interview that guy. Right. And, uh, uh, I, I happened so much. I, I could sort of pretend that I was tired of it, but I never really got tired of it. So I'm glad to be here. And it's been a long time. It's good to get attention, right? <laughs> well, I like being asked questions. So, well, so here's I, one. You know, there you go. All the right. biograph, mm-hmm. I remember it. Like I saw Rocky Horror Picture Show there mm-hmm. um, in like 1980-something. And okay. I also saw Nightmare on Elm Street 2 there. And that was about it. But I always, it was always there until it wasn't there were mm-hmm. did you were you the was there is was it there before you were involved was no it, no i was the original manager okay uh, it opened in february of 1972 okay and i had been hired in the in the fall before that by the owners of the business who ran the biograph in georgetown okay and, and so they they wanted to uh uh have a similar theater here mm-hmm. uh they they came down toured the fan and and just decided that you know it was going to be Georgetown. A lot of people who 
owned property and ran shops in, in, in that area, uh, were all caught up in the idea that that's what was going to happen, that there were hippies in Georgetown. The, there were hippies all over the fan. It was the same thing was going to happen here. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it did a little, but it didn't right. anywhere near as much as people thought. And so the Biograph down here struggled with a lot of the uh, uh, same repertory cinema staples that would just do fine always mm -hmm. up in uh, Georgetown. Uh, so it was tougher here. Mm -hmm. And they, they, so something like Rocky Horror Picture Show wouldn't do as well here as it did elsewhere no it did very well that here. did well here yeah yeah that that we caught a wave with that mm -hmm. uh, uh i had been out uh in la in the spring of 78 and that's when that was starting to catch on in places outside of new york in austin texas la it caught on there and mm -hmm. a few other spots and it had been put in a few other theaters as a midnight show mm -hmm. and fizzled completely. Yeah. And, and so I was fascinated with it. Uh, and I got to talking to people out there who knew more about it. So when I got back to Richmond, I really wanted to try to get it for the biograph and mm -hmm. talk to my bosses in, in D.C. They've, they felt the same way. Let's get it. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, we called 20th Century Fox and, and – uh, they didn't want to give it to us. Hmm. Uh, they uh, uh, they had the film had been a flop three years before when it first came out, and uh, then this thing started in New York and and in Texas. The audience participation, the, the au exactly, <laughs> back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, that the barrier between the you know the screen and the audience, you know, wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, so I was curious who made that happen. What promoter made that? I saw that as a gimmick. I said, mm -hmm. brilliant gimmick. But, yeah. You know, uh, nobody knew it at Fox. And, and uh, they didn't understand why it was happening. They, just, they didn't know. They said they didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, we wanted it. And they said, well, we don't have any more prints. We're not going to make any new prints until we figure out why this thing's happening. <laughs> and it was really, if now it's so easy to think Rocky Horror everywhere, forever. Right. But back then, nobody quite, in the spring of 78, nobody understood why this thing suddenly, this was happening. Yeah. And uh, obviously it attracted a crowd in New York that was influential. Mm -hmm. They were showbiz kind of people. Right. And, and they were using it to make a career, to become celebrities themselves. Yeah. And uh, so we made an offer to, to Fox that if we front you the money to make another print, can we keep that print as long as we want to at what we will agree to for terms? And it was one of the smartest things we ever did. Uh, how long did you have it? Five years. And how long were you the manager of the Biograph? Uh, from 72 through 83. 72 through 83. Uh, yeah. So the last five years I was there, uh, uh, we had Rocky Hart. It was like an annuity. You know, yeah. Just little money came in each week. You, you can know. always count on that. On, was it like Saturday nights? Or Friday, Friday and Saturday Friday nights Saturday. Was, was the way the midnight shows at the Biograph worked back then. Uh, you, you'd book a film, uh, hopefully, uh, at terms you could live with. And... and when we first opened, the theater was one auditorium with 520 seats. Mm -hmm. And we were more 
we were better suited to do a midnight show then mm -hmm. because you had enough seats. The Bird would be a great theater to do midnight shows in because you can bring in almost like 13,000 people, I mm -hmm, think. Mm -hmm. uh, when we divided the theater and became a twin cinema in 74, uh, we continued to do midnight shows, but we never had the same, uh, it, was, it was never as important again until Rocky Horror came along. Yeah. And uh, that sold out for the first year, probably every, every uh, after about the third week, it caught on. And, and what made it work was that we didn't really promote it much. Mm -hmm. We, Just let it give you word of yeah, mouth thing. Yeah, for, yeah. We had some ads on GOE where we played the music, and then the voice just said, "Get in the act Friday and Saturday at midnight at the Biograph." And that's it. That's awesome. No explanation, nothing. Just and and so, a guy told me a long time before then that sometimes you just have to let people discover something when you're promoting yeah you have to aim something at the right people who are influential let them discover it and then they'll amplify the whole yeah. thing and sometimes it's the fact that it's they know about it that makes other people seek it out like that they that mm -hmm. those are they're attracted to those personalities and they it's the whole viral phenomenon that's what they're always trying to do with uh, youtube clips right. and whatever well kids they, know who who they think is cool right and and who they want to imitate, who they take, you know, their, who they think uh, knows about movies mm -hmm. or music. Uh, the ones who will stick their neck out, uh, if they're any good at it, then then they get a following, uh, you know. And we know about the others. Nobody hears from them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nobody it's, cares. It's really fascinating how phenomenons like that happen, and then yet people try to manufacture them, and it never happens. You know, it's like that's the nature of the phenomenon. It just has to happen on its own. Right. You can't make it happen. And uh, well, back to that Rocky Horror thing. Some of the one of the guys I talked to at Fox told me how they had tried to make that happen in some of the cities that they took it to where it failed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's exactly what went wrong is, is that they, they tried to give you too much information. Mm -hmm. Here's what we want you to do. Yeah. You know, and yeah, we'll let you do this. And, and there was no, the, the discovery thing wasn't there. Right. It's what I'm guessing now looking back. Right. On it had, it. there were, it had it rumors, but nobody told you exactly what was going on in that theater. Mm -hmm. You just knew there was something going on and it was something you had right. to check it out for yourself. Well, the, and the kids who were doing it up in New York would come down to Richmond and kind of show everybody here right. how to do it, you know. <laughs> and, and so that was going on. Yeah. It was already playing in D.C. at the Key Theater up there. Mm -hmm. One of the original owners of the Biograph, David Levy, uh, ran the Key. And he was a sharp guy. He, he, was, he got one of those early prints. Mm -hmm. So the guys, the Biograph was built by these guys that hired you, and it was based on... Not really. No? No, they owned the business, but okay. it was built by Morgan Massey and Graham Pembroke, who Graham put the land together and brought the guys in D.C. together with uh, Massey, you know, Massey... Massey Wooden West? Matt, no, know. Massey Energy. Oh, Okay. Is that, but is, that's the same big Massey. That's not the same people. I think they might be. That cousins. might have been their old name. Might be cousins. Or, oh, okay. But, but that Massey Wooden West is a local thing. Massey right. Energy is like intergalactic. Oh, okay. So, but there was a group of people that built a theater, and then another group that you worked for came in and said, right. "We're going to make it like this thing." Right. And you referred to standard repertory 
movies or what did you say uh, earlier? Uh, the kind of standard repertory. Yeah. Well, there were was, there were there were. Uh, it was a it was a. What do you mean by hodgepodge like mainstream of, stuff or like the? It was a hodgepodge of of pop kind of stuff. You you had foreign films, heavy on the French New Wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you had uh, old classics from the 30s and 40s mm-hmm. uh citizen That's, kane right, right. thin man all like that, that kind yeah. of stuff uh and and you had in the 70s it was the most freewheeling decade maybe of all for cinema in mm-hmm. this country so you had all kinds of artsy kind of films being made that you could mix all up with this and mm-hmm. and make festivals with a theme mm-hmm. and uh so it was uh, it was cool. It was a lot of fun to program that mm-hmm. kind of theater. Uh, yeah, I would react to something that was in the news and get a double feature, you know, that that somehow pertained to that when I mm-hmm. could. Uh, with two theaters, we could have one we programmed uh, with uh, a planned schedule and sort of let the other one fill in wild card what, what we needed yeah, yeah sometimes that's you know when i was when i invited you over to do this i've been you know you and i interact i think sort of about political things on facebook a lot or we tend to be circling the same uh, <laughs> <laughs> issues yeah and uh, and that's what i was thinking about uh, on and then in slant when i asked you to come over here but mm-hmm. i i'd kind of forgotten about the biograph even though you put stuff up on throwback thursday and that's one of my dream jobs like I, I mean, there are all of these romantic old busted up movie palaces all over town, and many of them are nothing but a shell. Like the East End over here on 25th Street, mm-hmm. which was I think the the Patrick Henry or something before that, and had some weird name like way back in the day. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right I know here? the yeah. place. I, I can't call it. And uh, the Aztec or no wait, what is it called? The one that's on Brooklyn Park. Um, I I got the idea in my head. Well, was, that was the Brooklyn. That's the Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah. I got the idea in my head that was called something like the Aztec at some Might point. Might have at one time. I don't know. The Brooklyn is how I remember it. But I've always, and I know that there were other small theaters like uh, the Lee and the Biograph and all of that around town. Like there was the Jewel, I think, on Broad Street somewhere. And I remember when there, there were those three were the National, the State, and the Town, I guess, on Broad Street? Well, the National and the Town are the same one. Oh, they are? Yeah, the Colonial was the Colonial, one at the other end it. of the block. Okay. Yeah. But there were three of them, right? right. On the same block? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I'm fascinated with that idea of running a, a small movie theater. And I, I always and then there's the Robinson over here that like they still do right. little stuff in it. But like it doesn't seem like that fascinates anybody else. Or is it just like you can do so much of that at home like nobody – Wants to do it now, or? Well, I think you'd have to do it differently. Yeah. Uh, how how to uh, take something from the the repertory era, which I would say late '60s through uh, through the '70s, mm-hmm. uh, was was that time when a theater like that, if it were run properly, could could get by mm-hmm. uh, in, in a college town, or, or certainly in New York, in big cities. The Biograph in Richmond struggled most years. Some years it did all right. Uh, the first couple of years were, were tough because uh, we we were we learned the hard way that a lot of the artsier stuff that went over in D.C. didn't work here. Mm-hmm. So w- midnight shows became much more important to us than what they ever were in D.C. They mm-hmm. never really got to get that going for them up there the way we had it here the first couple of years. 
And did you predate like the movie machine thing, like that? Uh, yes. They used, yeah. And they they sort of jumped on your. Was that was well, were they influenced? It, by it was a pop that? thing. Midnight yeah. shows were a big deal. We just happened to open right at the time when it that phenomenon was starting to spread. Mm-hmm. It you had had them in you had had radio stations doing promotions in college towns with midnight shows for a long time, but the formula of showing them on Friday and Saturday night, same print. Uh, how to promote it in our case that was radio and and wgoe specifically mm-hmm. and and it was uh, handbills and 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 so uh we were around when that that style uh was was catching a wave and we were part of setting the tone for that so that was kind of fun uh and and did you get as to be I'm, kind of a ringmaster and a, and a character as the well, manager I, there? Well, you know, I, I, I ran the theater, and so there was a certain uh, uh, amount of exposure mm-hmm. that you had there. But uh, I had come from the radio business before I, I, I was at the Biograph, and I'd learned a little bit about advertising and radio production and, and, and sales and all of that. And, mm-hmm. and so our first couple of years, the Midnight Show which had me falling back on my radio experience mm-hmm. uh, was what kept the theater open. Yeah. And, and, and then gradually the audience in Richmond got more sophisticated. More people moved here. More people had seen good movies and knew mm-hmm. the difference between a good and a bad movie. Uh, Richmond was, was a bad movie town when the Biograph opened. That was something that my bosses had no sense of at all. They, they hadn't researched that end of it well enough or they just were arrogant and thought Mm -hmm. it didn't matter i'm not sure but a year later they weren't arrogant anymore (laughs) it's a fucking weird market richmond it still is yes it is things that you that that, you know like the the company i work for is open branches all over uh the country and they have had a much harder time i mean they usually just kind of it's kind of no sweat for them they open the doors and people just roll in there mm-hmm. you know they're all about it but they did not count on rich richmonder's way of being sort of hey, well this we already got something that works you know we don't necessarily need something new you know and then, yes i think <laughs> richmonder's uh i think it's uh, uh it's in the air uh that that w- we don't necessarily want to jump on some trend uh just because it's popular somewhere else you tell me this worked in poughkeepsie well you know i, I don't care I don't care. What are people in Poughkeepsie now? Yeah. <laughs> it almost makes me wonder after this many years of observing this phenomenon, if it isn't in t- somehow subconsciously intentional that you're just going to, it's the Mark Twain thing. Like whenever I find myself in the majority, I rethink my position. Like that's just built into Richmond. It doesn't want to be in the majority or doesn't want to, uh, you know, it's got like this mainstream thing, but it doesn't have a, uh, a, the majority of progress or, mm-hmm. or change like that. It's not going to be. I think that there's a, uh, uh, an arrogance in the air at the falls of the James. Uh, it's been, been here a long time. Probably the people in Richmond, if you go around the state, when I was young, I used to uh, be able to tell that people in other parts of the state thought that Richmonders looked down on everybody else in the, in the mm-hmm. state. And, uh, you know, I, so, so I, I think we, we grew up in a town that, that they feel like they know best. Mm-hmm. What they do, what they've already got, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, 
so we're, we're slow to change and and we didn't jump on every uh, bandwagon i mean you think about politics okay uh you know, we all we all can look back on the bird machine days of 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 how it was then, and and they were anti-labor, and they they didn't want people moving to Virginia. You know, mm -hmm. you don't like the way we shut down our public schools. You know, well, just, just don't come here then. Right. You know, that's fine. Stay where you are. Uh, well, th what that did that froze us in time, which is was mean and sad. But it kept Richmond from exploding in population the way all sorts of other old cities on the East Coast did. And, and so there's a lot of Richmond still left that didn't, mm -hmm. that didn't get run over. We mm -hmm. did tear a lot of things down here yeah. in the urban renewal time. That are, It's kind of sad to think of it now. But Richmond didn't go as far into all of that. As, so, the, you know, the, this neighborhood, uh, you know, old stuff still here. Yeah, and this is a crazy, funky, almost frontier layout over here. There's houses face in different directions. The streets don't run like grid-like. They run, yeah. you know, they're all weird angles. It's right. Stuff that looks like five points over here, you know, uh -huh. like just strange little plazas and intersections of like four or five streets. Well, I, I get, I guess the, uh, the 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 streets probably followed uh, trails mm -hmm. in in the early days, and and then you had people coming along trying to impose a grid. Mm -hmm over that so you have all these funny little corners yeah you can still see it around here you can see that somebody built their house like on a hunk of land and then they changed the street level they, they they put a sidewalk where there wasn't one before it might have been somebody's lawn that was just rolling down you know on, they, they had the whole property or something and so now you look at it, it doesn't really make sense in its orientation but it's it's charmingly eccentric and <laughs> i think so <laughs> yeah i think so yeah I, I, seeing everything uh uh, the, the, the design of so many things now, the thinking, it's, it's all been focus grouped mm -hmm. to me, shopped that way to death to the point where you've got committees thinking into everything instead mm -hmm. of somebody that, that has an idea and, and, and is just going to make that idea work. Uh, I don't know what I would do to change that, but it seems that ages we're looking well, back you're kind at of it. damned if you do damned if you don't you know because you're talking like the guys that brought the biograph down here didn't do any research and thought no. it was going to work and you got people doing too goddamn much research and it doesn't mm -hmm. work and there is an organic chaotic phenomenon that that i think people sense and they just want to i think there is so much i mean capitalism and at least the marketing of capitalism is like our fascism you know, like the way that people try to get us to get into something, you know, to buy it. Like there's there's so much like uh, pressure from like Madison Avenue to tell you who you are and to get you to buy this uniform. Mm -hmm. And get into it. it's not coming from the government saying you all have to do this. It's actually masquerading as choice. And, you know, and I think people can feel that there's there's a certain like percentage of the population. You can always feel that they're being that that's going on, yes. you know, and they're just like, I'm not doing that no matter what. <laughs> it's hard not to yeah. get yanked around by your choices mm -hmm. that you make, you know, because every time you're exercising your freedom, you're buying something, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, so, you know, what, what, how free is a guy who can buy a Ford or a Chevrolet right. <laughs> when he's got to pay for it for three years either yeah. way? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, I mean, the illusion of this desirability that you want to mortgage, so much of, yeah, your actual freedom to get locked into this item. And there's so much of it. I mean, the idea of luxury in general, like that, mm -hmm. that, you know, that's successful to be, you know, to be 
owned by these things that you own. But, you know, I was, I think about, like, I think Richmond in some ways is like uh, the old aristocracy mindset of England, you know, like they, they were just, you know, <laughs> it, it kind of, that's who are actually started this town. Like the majority of the, the you know, the founders are people from England that were sure. landed arist- aristocracy, friends of the queen. You know, she gives them parcels of land. They come over here and set up and they bring their pastimes. And, and it just was kind of a continuation of that. Well, Virginia know. wasn't settled originally by people that were coming here for uh, religious reasons. Right. Uh, they were coming here to make money. Straight up. Yeah. <laughs> this and, ain't New England. You know, it's, so the, so the, whole, the whole thing was different. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but, but you can see that things were different. So, mm-hmm. so to get, have a revolution, you needed Virginia and New England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. The, the uh, we had the money. Yeah, the money and the <laughs> right, and and it's you know there's still this this sense like I I went up and put my canoe in the river up near um, Gaskins Road like the James River Golf Course and I came down the river there and there are people that that's that you know they just they're still very much like I mean take out the motorboat it's still very like you know, old, old school kind of landed gentry with, a, you know, a bunch of acres on the river, yeah. you know, and just got, they got, they own this, they own this part of the river. It's like, it's just kind of theirs and that that's good enough. You know, you can get drunk, you can fish, you can uh, hang out with your friends, you can gossip, you can kind of go see and be seen. It's, you know, it's like the court life of England. And, and, and there's sort of been a huge, the most of the people in this town with money have been pretty satisfied with that that pastime, you know, yeah. and that kind of entertainment for the smart ones with money that I used to always hear when I was young is, uh, they didn't show it in town. They mm-hmm. went, they left town to do that. You, right. you go to New York, you go to Atlanta, you go somewhere else and peel out the fat, stacks throw out and... your money and stretch your stuff and all that. But don't do that in town. Right. That was, it was gauche. Yeah. 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 I don't know if that's still true or not. What do you think? It's always, you know, I was, I was raised by a family that always said, you don't talk about what, you know, about money, you mm-hmm. know, talk about what your father makes and you don't, you don't ever talk about that. You never make an issue out of that. It's, mm-hmm. It would be very gauche to talk about. Yeah. And you try to act you, and you try to be hospitable in a way that it ain't no thing. You know, you don't care how much, whatever it is you're putting out costs or how much your hospitality costs or whatever. But I do think that, that, uh, well to do people around here anyway, do still imitate, uh, royalty mm-hmm. in, in uh in in europe mm-hmm. in a way uh, and there well we had i guess we had our own in rise of the bourgeoisie here as well right like there's we, we started off with the old landed money the old money and and we got some new money in there too through the the tobacco well think how much richmond has changed uh in the last 20 years uh I think because of VCU as mm-hmm. much as anything else. Yeah. The impact that VCU has had is just uh, tremendous. What do you think that's about? Do you think it's the amount of people that are coming here to go there? Well, it's 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 been here now for a while, for mm-hmm. one thing. Uh, you, you know, I, I think that you you've now have people that are in their 60s that went to VCU, you mm-hmm. know, that first year in 68. And uh, some of them got some money now. Uh and so VCU's uh, buildings, uh, VCU's uh, impact on, on, on Richmond just to me is tremendous. And, mm-hmm. and I know that there are people that don't like everything. Some don't like, seem to like anything VCU mm-hmm. does. But, <laughs> but I'm not in that camp. 
uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying they've always been a good neighbor, but uh, I, I think that as fast as that school has established itself and as much good as it has done, uh, that, that people ought to uh, cut them a little slack. But do you think they're, they're part of the reason the Georgetown thing phenomenon didn't happen? You know? Well, the Georgetown thing, I, I don't know much about real estate, but I think it was guys that were, the way I felt at the time, uh, people sat on property down in, in that Gray Street strip that right. the Biograph was in, mm-hmm. the 800, 900 block of Grace. Sure. And the whole rock and roll punk scene was all centered there mm-hmm. in, in the 70s, early 80s. Uh, I think that a lot of people sat on property and didn't develop it, didn't sell it, was sure that there was going to be a, a windfall one day, and and an era passed, and and they were still holding those properties, and they were worth less, mm-hmm. and the neighborhood started getting rougher in the mm-hmm. '80s. Uh, didn't it wasn't a hippie paradise anymore. It was uh, it, it was a culture clash neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You had different kids from different parts of town that right. were uh, the drugs got meaner. Yeah, uh, you know uh, when things switched from. Uh, from uh, pot to cocaine yeah. uh, in the in the early 80s, mm-hmm. uh, you saw everything get meaner down mm-hmm. there. Yeah, so I that mean, happened. The arrow just the chance to cash in and be Georgetown didn't happen. And one of the reasons was that people who owned property sat on it. Yeah, and and, and I'm not. Sh- I'm sure there are other reasons. Terry, I think there's still that's still fucking going on. Like that, <laughs> that's how the ins- impression that I get as I drive around this neighborhood or you go around Chaco Bottom. Like, why is this building on 18th Street empty? And why? And it's been empty for a long, long time. Like that guy can't rent it out. He can't like put apartments in it. No, he's just waiting for that thing that's going to happen. The ballpark or whatever the high speed rail or, or you know yeah. the, everything that it gets promised every 5 years or so that's going to be the revolutionary thing and meanwhile it's, it's it's just floundering you know and not only is the property value decreasing but nobody's really maintaining the property that well so it's like kind yeah. of you know the you speak of the ballpark uh the Shaco uh, stadium uh, uh brouhaha right. uh, I I've been all wrapped up in that so, so uh wh- one of the things that that is uh i marvel at is is how long this has gone on when i'm sure the vast majority of people in, in richmond don't want it mm-hmm. but there's still this push for it mm-hmm. and 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 why would anybody be for it well i think i think one of the things is that it's for people who are disappointed uh frustrated with with way things are they think that stadium will make it better just mm-hmm. like the people who sit on property with no mm-hmm. plan of what to do it they wait for somebody to do something to make what they have better mm-hmm. and so i think some of the restaurants some of the people down in the bottom think that that will be uh the thing that'll make everything better mm-hmm. uh I, I can't look into the future and say well that 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 can't happen but but i think the the people who support it are kind of dreaming Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think when you look at all the, uh, the, the big picture, there's so many reasons to be against it. Uh, you can throw a rock in any direction that will yeah. land on a reason well, not to do it. The people that they seem to be dreaming of attracting here, too, have made it very clear that they want to keep getting as far away from this city as possible. Mm-hmm. And they're not coming back. But there are people who are here that like this funky, crazy, well, screwed up 
urban environment and want to start businesses here's, here. And, here's here's a, a, a dark angle to it, but it's part of it. There are a lot of reasons this thing has happened. Some of the people figure that with baseball, and in Richmond, baseball has always been a white crowd. Mm-hmm. A lot of people from the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're going to, we're going to bring them all down to the bottom, that'll fix what's wrong with the mm-hmm. bottom. Mm-hmm. It's, it's too dark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they want to they, they uh, bring a bunch of white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I, when I first saw that, uh, it, it, it made me know, having grown up as a baseball fan here, that the, the, a lot of the people that go to the Diamond and went to Parker Field will never go down there. So, yeah. so the, all these projections that they have about how many people are going to show up after the uh, newness wears off and you're two or three years into this thing, the idea that there's thousands of young guys in town who want to go to baseball games and then wander into some bars and back into the stadium, I think there might be four or 500 guys in Richmond right. like that. That's right. it. I don't think there's many of them. No. And, you know, they had their way – that demographic had their way with Shaco Bottom for a very short period of time with uh, Castle Thunder and, and Bird in Hand and – Oh, and like when uh, Chetty's was down there. Yeah, I agree. Know. But, you know, and, and it's it's easy to put like, and, I, and I, like this is an important issue to address is like, you know, the uh, cultural and what, for lack of a better word, racial issue. But we really are talking, not a racial issue, we're talking about a cultural issue because nobody has any kind of a problem with like sweet teas, you know. that That's not, it's not a complexion issue. It's, it's the urban culture that based on an identification with hip-hop culture or rap culture or whatever, you have to have some place to go act tough and, and fuck with people right. and go to Da Club. Mm-hmm. And we don't even allow Da Clubs in Virginia. Like, you can't have <laughs> that here. Right, you, right. Can, you, ha- you can have a restaurant and you can serve alcohol and maybe you can get a cabaret license and have dancing in there, but you can't have a business dedicated to that like you can in right. New York or Atlanta or whatever. But yet these guys, a lot of guys keep opening places down there and they like, they like the biograph guys. They don't even know that there's a liquor, you know, they have right. to sell 51% food and they can't just open a dance club down there. Well, but, everybody thinks they know how to run a restaurant. Have right. you ever noticed that? Cause, and it was the same way at the biograph. <laughs> I would yeah. sit, I would stand there by the turnstile every night. People coming over, tell me, telling me how to run the place and you know oh thank you mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah what you need suggestion. to do is yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and and i'm sure you know that about restaurants yeah and i say know. it to people all the time too <laughs> i'm awful <laughs> so so a lot of them are doomed because mm-hmm. of that factor i think and i think a lot of movie theaters that happens mm-hmm. people just uh think they know about movies mm-hmm. so they could that's run all they need theater. to know yeah. right and i mean and there's enormous amount of people that open restaurants that have no interest in food and never have they are they want to sell liquor Mm-hmm. And they want to create a scene where they can just serve enough food and like can fill it up with chicken tenders and whatever, and then get to the part where everybody gets drunk right. and spends a lot of money. You know, well, Virginia and, doesn't want you in that business. They don't, and and that is an old, you know, racial and class issue, right? For, for I the think state, because it, it doesn't go back uh, forever. You know, it, that stuff goes back uh, to. Uh, if you go back both before prohibition and and even even I think in the 30s, mm-hmm. you had uh, a nightclub scene in Richmond. Yeah. And and after World War II, uh, when massive resistance comes in and all of that, there, then you get a big push to control entertainment 
mm-hmm. in Virginia. Hmm. Uh, and I, I, was, I learned about this running a movie theater. It was very hard to get a license to run a movie theater. Yeah. Uh, they had to investigate you from every angle. It was amazing. Uh, and I started being sensitive then to how the admissions tax came in and and all sorts of other things that have that stifle show business in Richmond. And it made me understand that what happened is in the 50s, the guys who run things decided they wanted you and your private club right. drinking and dancing. Right. And they wanted them and their private club. And they didn't want white kids and black kids dancing in public. Well, I thought it was even worse that was than it. that. It they was didn't like, want they them didn't drinking. Want and... them drinking? Period. Like right. they weren't even because like, you couldn't have a bar. No, you could drink at the country club all you wanted. Right. No, the, the rich people could. Mm-hmm. They, and that's why there's a billion clubs. Right. The engineers club, the women's the and the people in nip joints were drinking. Right. Uh, but those know, weren't legal. Those are somebody's basement right. with a bar built into yes. it and whatever. So they weren't even really. But old. they were tolerated to a great extent, long as you paid the cops off. I don't think you had any trouble. But this all came after, like, the 50s. Because I was thinking that this has sort of always been a Virginia con- I don't control think so. issue. But no, it was, okay. No, I, like, the ABC board goes back to when Prohibition ended. That's right. when they started that. Before that, I don't know what how Virginia controlled liquor, but it was different. So the ABC laws come in then, in the 30s. And and it all got political after World War II. And... and that's where you see a whole bunch of uh, rigid controls over entertainment and making mm-hmm. it so you couldn't dance. Mm-hmm. That you couldn't you couldn't get a cabaret license mm-hmm. in Richmond, uh, and and so they would come in and bust a restaurant if two girls were standing by the jukebox swaying, listening to the music. They were dancing. They'd shut that guy down. Wow. I mean, that was the kind of stuff they had. They had a police force. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the vice squad or something. But well, they not. would lo- they would look through your and uh, more recently they would look in through a uh, window and see the guy that owned the place sitting in there having a beer while he's doing paperwork by himself at three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. and and take his license away for for drinking uh, in there. After oh yeah, two they'll o'clock. still do that. That was Chuck. <laughs> oh, that happened to Chuck. Yes, a couple of times, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like he was going to have a beer, you know, and and they busted him for in his it. own he place. Did it anyway. Like, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it does seem like I don't know exactly what motivates it. I mean, there's a whole lot of ways you can sort of look at the conspiracy of it. It's like we we don't want anybody but the the people that look like us and and are our friends to commu- to basically organize and to be a, a culture. And like, if you don't let people have fun together, you don't let people dance together, you don't let people drink together and do all of these things and they don't become a community, Right. you know, they stay, you know, separated. Cause you know, it's kind of revolution comes out of the pubs, right? Like, well, you know, for me, music and sports were the ways I, I got to know black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, when I grew up in Richmond, you had to do something to know black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where were you born? Uh, I, I live. I've lived here all my life. But what? Uh, like, and what, I grew up in the fan. In the fan. Yeah. Did, did you, were you born in the fan? Or? No. Well, literally, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was born there. And and the first uh, ten years, I lived uh, uh, in Chesterfield County with my grandparents and my mother. And so what, the, what was that? Like? Moved into the fan for junior high and high school. You were born in like fifty something. Forty seven. Forty seven. And so at, at your time, the fan was pretty segregated or well it was uh 
segregated, yes, if you're talking about black and white. Uh, but the fan uh, was was kind of a melting pot, mm-hmm. uh, more much more working class uh, than than people might think of it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you had more rent renters, mm-hmm. you had more rooming houses, uh, you had some streets where very well-to-do people lived, and uh, and when I was uh, when Katie was little. Uh, and we lived on Floyd Avenue, and I was at the Biograph. You could buy a house on Floyd on that block then for uh, twenty-five or thirty thousand mm. uh, dollars, and uh, so you had a lot of people coming in uh, during that time. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the houses I guess were undervalued. And so you were saying that, like, so growing up, you didn't have that much to like. You didn't interact that much with black people. No, no. When I was, went to TJ, was uh, when the first black kid came there in the ninth grade and uh there might have been 15 black kids when i when i left uh and I, you know I, I was i don't remember being friends with any of them i remember talking remember asking questions uh i was curious mm-hmm. you know uh they all lived in the uh <clears throat> excuse me in the uh, neighborhood right off of willow lawn drive the street main street street through there is Glen Burnie, uh-huh. right north of Patterson. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a little community there, mm-hmm. uh, black community that was older than Willow Lawn Drive. Mm-hmm. That went way back, uh, and they were in the city mm-hmm. and in TJ's area. So mm-hmm. in 1963, those kids started coming to TJ. And uh, that's interesting because you know I guess Katie and I had the opposite experience mm-hmm. of going to Richmond Public Schools where there would be like. 15 white kids and <laughs> right. like I came up in Churchill and obviously I was a, a minority at at Bellevue and Henderson and places I went and I couldn't escape it was very rare for me to interact with more standard Caucasian culture mm-hmm. like I was I went to it was culture shock for me when I went to the West End to start going to Marymount in high school out on Cary Street Road I, I didn't understand why these kids like the Grateful Dead so much and all of that it's like have you heard like the stuff that we're, you know, this time like new wave was happening and punk mm-hmm. was happening. And these guys were all just listening to classic rock, and, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there's, there, I guess there'll always be a following for that, mm-hmm. uh, and it, and it's it's the most accessible music in this part of the country. Yeah. Well, yeah, because Clear Channel owns everything, and they have their formatted classic yeah. rock stations. And get this, when I, when I was uh, at WRNL. Before the biograph, uh, it changed hands. Uh, the newspapers had owned it, and Rust Communications bought it while I was there. And at that time, when they bought the AM and FM station, um, that became their sixth and seventh stations that this group owned. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That's all the FCC allowed. Seven. Uh huh. Imagine and, that. Yeah. Today. And now we're at what thousands. Thousands. Or- and 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 the uh, the whole idea of of buying canned shows that you would buy a service and mm-hmm. all that that was just starting then in the early seventies, mm-hmm. uh, where you could you could just put a tape on and have an announcer come in. You don't even know every now and there personalities and all that. Right, right. They were phasing that out. You know, you and I almost ended up doing this at uh, famous Brown's place today uh he owns 1450 on hull street do you know him mm-hmm. he owns the am station i never met the guy before i was out doing my rounds and i went to fairfield 
commons the mall of the living mm-hmm. dead over there and i was visiting somebody and i saw his place and his you know he's got this costume on and stuff so i walked in and started talking to him and he's like a pro-am wrestler like there's all these pictures of him with like rick flair and oh i do know him yeah i, I interviewed him one time uh <laughs> for for what was it oh, uh richmond.com Oh yeah, yeah. When I used to write for them, Richard was that Foster, a style spinoff for Richmond.com back then? I don't they were in the same the building, yeah, uh, okay. uh, over on uh, Main. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Richmond.com was started by a guy named Pete Conti, mm-hmm. and then he sold it to uh, the uh, uh, Landmark Communications that mm-hmm. owns the Virginian Pilot, the Weather Channel, and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But but then they made him in charge of it here. Mm-hmm. And he had an office in the same building with Style. Landmark still owns Style. Mm-hmm. So they, they were together uh, for a couple of years, and then Whitlock, a local company here, bought, them, okay. bought Richmond.com. Later, he sold it to the Richmond newspapers. But I, I started talking to him. I was like, I'd love to have you on my... Uh on my podcast sometime and he's like why don't you come to my studio tonight and we'll do it live you know uh-huh. and i was like well i've already got this thing so he goes bring him you you guys can do it we'll record it you can. <laughs> i'm like i think it's a little short notice but you know, maybe next time yeah you know? yeah this this was okay uh, <laughs> he's a character though yeah as i remember it I, I haven't seen him in 15 years probably he looks exactly the same as his pictures mm-hmm. over there but uh, it's there's a very strange scene going on in his like corner of Fairfield Mall. Yeah. It's like he's got this big holding there. Yeah, he's a pro wrestler, but he's a little guy. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah, he's he's not a big dude. Maybe he was like uh, Humphrey J. Uh, Kyle, who did the Andy Kaufman thing, the cross gender championship. You know? <laughs> He mixed. I forget what it was like. He 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 would wrestle women. Right. Yeah, I remember when was, Kaufman was doing that. One of them beat him up pretty bad. I think didn't didn't he? I think so. And then we had a local guy that was doing that. I don't know if you remember him, Kyle something or other. But he owned Humphrey J's. He named it. He he was Humphrey J. Dupont. And I I think he actually might be related to the Duponts, and he named himself that and was wrestling under that same uh, title. He was the yeah. ch- intergender champion or something. <laughs> the only pro wrestler I ever knew was a guy named Dennis Johnson. He was a notorious character around fan, here, mm-hmm. fan fan league softball guy, and uh, and known for all kinds of uh, stunts. And <laughs> and he was he was uh, friends with uh, what's the guy's name McMahon mm-hmm. that had the big. Yeah. Uh, he uh, is the big the, right. Yeah, they they it. went to they went to like Fork Union or somewhere like that together. Oh yeah. And so he went way back with the guy and started working for him. But wasn't making a, he wasn't a star. He wasn't making a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was getting beat up pretty good, mm-hmm. and because that's what the young guys that's what right. they do. They're the hamburger meat. And mm-hmm. right, and and so he quit it about a year before that whole thing took off like a rocket. Yeah. He quit doing it and went to New Orleans. Uh, sort of needed to leave Richmond, and and, uh, <laughs> and and eventually he left New Orleans the same way. I think. Mm-hmm. I've I've been there. I've been there. I've been somebody who needed to leave Richmond. I can relate to that. I've, I've seen that happen. It can just happen. Mm-hmm. Things mm-hmm. can just add mm-hmm. up. I gotta get out of here for a while. I'll be back when this dies down. Yeah, I've, I have felt that way, but I always ignored it. Uh, and that may have been a mistake. It doesn't. Well, you can't pull it geographical. But you know, if you're Leo Corey, you have to. Mm-hmm. You know, you the, have I never got a lot of offers uh, to to leave Richmond. The ones that I got, though, I didn't take. 
<laughs> and and so here I am, mm-hmm. you know. I was going to ask you, you, did you, Ronnie Safi, you, you know him? He used sure. To, yeah. He, you know, I grew up with his son. Well, I was in high school with his son, Jason, and, mm-hmm. and Ronnie was kind of like my guru in high school. He sort of brought, brought me into this whole other side of Richmond and, you know, turned me on to music and tell, would, he would drive me home from their house when they lived over there near, near TJ and he would drive me home and, mm-hmm. and tell me all these stories about the fan and all of that. And he was talking about like just all the crazy stuff that used to go on on Gray Street, like there was a police officer that hung around down there and they gave him a tab of acid and or, or more than one and he's just riding up and down gray street on his horse and i don't remember that <laughs> but but i if ronnie said it there might be some truth in it <laughs> <laughs> there's some chance that there yeah is truth. you remember his band the scary oh yeah, yeah yeah i loved you know and i really loved i liked their concept and the stuff they were doing but i really loved the weekly world news uh, thing that publication they were putting out that was mostly right. written by the guitar player Tommy like that was some of the best satire slash it was like the daily show like they really they had actual yeah. news I never knew how to take that I never knew whether he was kidding or not you know he but he was in he like really knew his stuff you know but he, uh-huh. he like he had he came up with really great nicknames and jokes to kind of write about city officials but you were still getting yeah. like true you know yeah it, it, it all seemed sort of like a fantasy too mm-hmm. you know uh so i guess satire i guess that's the way to look at it yeah well yeah the whole the whole shtick i mean it's kind of like uh guar for old people you know because <laughs> that was definitely ronnie was trying to be odorous like right you know he was he invented a character for himself and he was you know it wasn't that far removed from his normal behavior well ronnie is has always been one of those people that marched to his own beat mm-hmm. i mean I've, I've known him since like the sixth grade mm-hmm. and uh we played baseball against each other he was at Cary, i was at robert e lee and uh so i've known him all through high school and all of that and he was he was always offbeat mm-hmm. and, and funny yeah yeah he was a great i mean a great anchor for me as i went into the uh, marymount scene and how like homogenous mm-hmm. stuff was out there, you know. He would just, I'd get back in the car and I'd be dealing with that whole, uh, uh, you know, not being like everybody else thing. I'm the kid from the wrong side of the tracks, and he was mm-hmm. like, "Fuck them, <laughs> their shit stinks same as yours." <laughs> it was yeah. Great. He likes aphorisms. <laughs> <laughs> he was really good. I mean, he he. I I I'm serious in a lot of ways. I mean, he had a huge. I mean, it was a great way to navigate that whole mm-hmm. that whole culture class was with that, and and then like him playing his mixtapes, uh, you know, Roxy Music, right, and, and the Kinks and all of this stuff that I had heard, you know, the popular stuff, right, never, you know, he really had an awesome record collection. And then it was videos after that, but so you, we started talking about Weekly World News and Slant. You mm-hmm. you started that when? Uh, first Slant came out in 1985, and uh, I. I Published it uh, in different formats uh, until through 1993, 85 to it's like nine years, I mm-hmm. guess. And uh, uh, it was uh, a, a magazine. Uh, it, it I put out two issues. Uh, there were 16 pages, and then put it to sleep. Then the handbill issue came back up, uh, mm-hmm. and so I started putting slants. On telephone poles as as a handbill with ads on them, the point was to say that uh, 
that the telephone poles and the handbills on them were like an information system, mm-hmm. just like a radio station, mm-hmm. just like a, a publication, just like a newspaper, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that certain people depended on that information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I had gone to court in 82 to fight the city's handbill laws and had won. Uh, and three years later, they came back with some more to, to try to stop the clubs and the bands from putting up handbills. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get busted, and they wouldn't do it. They, 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 you know, they you couldn't get arrested. Couldn't get arrested. <laughs> they, yeah, it, it was kind of funny. I mean, I, it, I, I, I tried. Yeah. And I had friends back then uh, who were uh, uh, on the softball team. We all hung around together. And they were real good lawyers. Mm-hmm. So I was cocky about it because I knew I could out-lawyer mm-hmm. whoever I was going to run into. And we always did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the slant started as a challenge, uh, like an art, uh, uh, kind of an art project uh, in a way. In a way. Uh, uh, and, and just to see what would happen and to try to provoke some things to happen because I wanted to go back in court, have the law declared unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it ended up, I fell in love with publishing. Mm-hmm. And so then I stopped putting them on polls and the rest of the time they were either newsletters or tabloid format or whatever. And was all it slant implies that it was a, it was a political thing. So it was originally a political statement. Well, I, I wanted, I wanted to provoke the, the, the reader into uh, thinking about it long enough to realize that everything has a slant. That mm-hmm. that that, and but I'm admitting it. Right. You know, everybody right. else has got a slant, and they're trying to say they don't. Mm-hmm. But well, I've got one, and 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 so the writing style that I went with, I assumed you knew what what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't waste a whole lot of space with all kinds of background, bringing you up to speed every time I wrote about something. Mm-hmm. I, it, it was more like radio. It was mm-hmm. more, more like tuning into a talk show. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit like a blog, mm-hmm. actually. Um, mm-hmm. So there were little blurbs in the slant originally, and it was a way for me to uh, put my uh, cartoons, my political cartoons out there. So I just wrote thinking that I'll just fill it up with copy. Then mm-hmm. I got some friends to start submitting things, and it, and and for a while there, I had I had a little stable of writers, mm-hmm. and I published old cartoons by classics from the past, mm-hmm. and one of mine in each issue for about a year. The uh, classic like. Cats and Jammer Kids are like R. Crumb. No political cartoons. Okay. Oh, okay. No, no R. Crumb. Like Teapot Dome scandal, yellow. Yeah, there you go. Thomas Nast, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Daumier, uh, the the great uh, political cartoonists uh, Mm -hmm. in Europe and in in this country. Uh, So I I grew up marveling at their drawing styles as Mm -hmm. a kid. And uh, R. Crumb was a big influence, too. Mm -hmm. But but later, Mm -hmm. I was already into that political kind of cartoon with the cross-hatching and all of that Mm -hmm. before I ever saw any of Crumb stuff. The really detailed like pen and ink kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So, did you go to school for art? No. At all? What did you study? No. Uh, or did I, you go to school? Not much. Yeah. No, I, they they could barely make me go to school. <laughs> so so I uh, escaped from TJ. I uh, was at VCU for a cup of coffee, and uh, <laughs> and and I was pretty much self-taught in in most of what I've what I've done. I, I did have a few jobs. I had a couple of jobs that, that were uh, 
uh, very intense uh, kind of learning times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think the same way about the early years of the biograph was learning from all those old movies. Uh, back in those days, I used to collect old magazines. So I read magazines from 100 years ago, 150 years ago, sat around reading the politics and looking at the art and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, by the time I was old enough to have a, uh, a graduate degree, I, I kind of did in a very mm-hmm. arcane area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew about movies. That's how most graduate degrees are. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> Narrow. What is the word? Uh, pedantic? Perhaps? Yeah. Well, I don't have any credentials <laughs> yeah. uh, to speak of. But, I, I, you know, political art, uh, movies, a uh, little bit of music, you know, the few things that I have focused on. Uh, at one time, I, I felt like I, I understood how to work in those realms. Well, it seems that you, like, I see a thread there, this intuiting, like, the various forms of communication that, that people use, especially the kind of underground ones, If that if, like, the big money and the big power are trying to control certain outlets, um, that there has to be, whether it's, like, the Christians drawing the fish you know in the catacombs or whatever mm-hmm. or people putting handbills on telephone poles yeah. or whatever how you know all of the you, you've seen to have been sort of fascinated with how the message gets across you know even in a a pre-literate or non-literate uh way well you know. i caught on to that as a kid mm-hmm. uh I, I that was something that uh, in the early days of the biograph we had a bunch of guys that were hanging around there that were into cartoons Mm-hmm. Uh, like you know, we'd all grown up, Phil Trumbo, Steve Siegel, Trent Nicholas, uh, all of us were 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 just worshipped certain old cartoons and mm-hmm. cartoonists. And uh, in in that time, I've lost my track now. Where was I going with that? About the underground communication. Or- oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at, at any event, uh, all of us talked about. Uh, when we were little kids, that we we understood how they made the cartoons. We we figured out that that certain kinds of images had power, mm-hmm. and and how you could how you could uh, manipulate uh, the, the things with cartoons and and really analyzing it, mm-hmm. you know. And and so uh, th- that side of things always fascinated me uh watching tv making movies how were they doing it mm-hmm. how did they make that shot look like that mm-hmm. and why why mm-hmm. did they put this thing there and that thing there Th- figuring that everything that's in a movie frame is there on purpose yeah you know especially mm-hmm. in the days of the studios mm-hmm. they weren't out on the street you didn't mm-hmm. have somebody walking into the frame mm-hmm. it was all put there well, mm-hmm. well well why was it put there mm-hmm. and so i thought a lot about that stuff and, and and I always have have been drawn to to uh, uh, figuring it out and and using it myself. So mm-hmm. I've I've had little uh, self uh, I've had uh, maybe what we would call vanity press uh, mm-hmm. TV shows, radio shows. I was on color radio with a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Katie and I did a, a political. Uh, oh yeah talk show at one point uh, about 20 years ago and uh, none of these things ever made a lot of money a few times it was worthwhile a couple of times that mm-hmm. just didn't work at all I was gonna ask you actually if like when you got into the biograph and you and you 
put a lot of energy into that did did you think oh this is my ticket i'm gonna make money or were you like this is really the platform or the influencer or like well i thought it was the coolest job in richmond yeah uh so so that i I knew that right away Mm -hmm. uh what i made of the job because i didn't take somebody else's job uh, what i was allowed to do uh took me well beyond what i ever would have imagined uh, I thought I would be there a few years and it would be a pathway to making films. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to come in the side door or the back door and be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would take the art, the writing, the, everything, music, put it all together. Mm-hmm. And, and when I left uh, in 83, one of the reasons that, that I wanted to leave was that I had realized that as long as I was there, I was always going to be presenting other people's stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would never really be pressured to make my own stuff. So uh, I've I tried. I've made my living, such as it's been uh, ever since then, on my own stuff. Yeah. What was your day job since then? <laughs> I've I've, I've uh, well, slant was my day job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been a freelance uh, writer, artist, videographer, photographer since '83. Uh, and and there have been times that uh, uh, when when I got by with uh, very little, mm-hmm. yeah, I've learned to live a, an austere lifestyle. I like that. I think I the reason that I'm doing this is similar to why you were doing what you were doing. I don't. I never thought that like there'd be any money in this, but I really want to take advantage of the opportunity to communicate mm-hmm. and to get stories out there. And to highlight, I mean, I think it's awesome that v, that VCU has brought so much new blood into Richmond. Absolutely. You know, and there are people who could give a shit about whatever it is that we have all just assumed is the case. You know, mm-hmm. whether we like it or not, we've sort of set ourselves up and you don't do this here or you don't do that here. And they, they do that over there and we do this over here. And there are all of these people who've come in who are just like, we'll do whatever we want, wherever. It's just a town, you know. And that's that's really cool, but also I feel like we're sort of in danger of forgetting our, you know, our characters and our lore and what does make us, you know, this dysfunctional family that produces these interesting characters that are pretty, you know, unique to me everywhere that I've gone. I've always wanted to come back here, mm-hmm. you know, um, especially people who who have a lot of talent and are very interesting and iconoclastic and forward thinking and talented and I've said talented art twice I think. Um, but they stay here instead of doing the yes. normal thing, which is to run off to Chicago, New York, L.A. Exactly. Um, you, know. it, you you did one of these uh, interviews with Chuck Wren, my old friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a guy that if, if he hadn't deliberately stayed here, there's just so many things that wouldn't have happened, mm-hmm. that, you know, or they wouldn't have happened as they, as they did. Uh, Chuck, had he chased money uh, in another city uh, – you know, could have, could have done very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so there are people like Chuck who, who just decided that they love Richmond, uh, mm-hmm. that it's it, wh- whatever reason, they like it here and they mm-hmm. want to make it happen here. Mm-hmm. And there have been times, the music scene in, in, on, that, on Gray Street mm-hmm. in the late 70s and early 80s, that was as cool as a music scene anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was traveling in those days to New York and San Francisco and those people knew about what was going on in mm-hmm. Richmond. Uh, uh, so th- what can happen here can be, uh, it, it may never get the publicity 
you may not get rich. But what's happening here uh, is is uh, top shelf a lot mm-hmm. of times. Yeah, and that's the thing that's come up in this a lot. That I mean, I w- I was I was in, in love with. I mean, VCU when I came here after going to Marymount for four years and being out there doing the West End thing and occasionally hanging out with like the open high kids and uh, all that. I I came back to VCU and it was like moving to another town. There was it was I mean all the stuff going on on Gray Street was just blowing my doors open, you know, and all the art and the music and the culture and warehouse parties and all of this stuff. And I remember people were like in at VCU saying, "Well, as soon as I'm done with this, I'm moving to New York." And I'm like, "Why would you do that? Like we got this here, you mm-hmm. know. This is cooler than that." And but all of a sudden, like you you know things didn't just turn like there was definitely conflict between like say Ivory's uptown lounge and the metro and this this sort of confrontational sort of uh, hip-hop culture coming into it and it being like a, a sort of a i don't know I, I can't think of the word imperative that you had to get in a fight and fuck with somebody you know as a part of the evening mm-hmm. um that coming in but also that at that time vcu also did you know decided that gray street was hurting their chances of attracting you know a certain level of student. You know, I mean, they really actively, I mean, as much as they brought to the town, they, at that time, they actively quashed what was going on right. on Gray Street. I mean, well, that, the, the school had ignored Gray Street for a long time, and I think finally they panicked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this, but they had a policy of staying off of Gray Street. They didn't want, they wanted to let it be more natural. Mm-hmm. And whatever buying and manipulating they did they were very uh discreet about it mm-hmm. you know you didn't know that they owned it mm-hmm. uh, but it seemed like i think they should have moved into gray street years before they did well you know could they not have could they have done that without like you know they, they at some point they appreciated the naturally occurring habitat that was over there mm-hmm. you know and then at some point decided that habitat was actually a threat yeah, at least this is the story I've been telling myself for a long time that say mm-hmm. mom and dad bring their kid down from Arlington to look at the school and they're going to go there for mass comm or whatever. And they go and they go, well, it's nice. I, I like the facilities. Mm-hmm. Not very expensive. Nice dorms. Walk over one block. Oh, dear. There's an X-ray. Well, I think that's why it looks a, like it does now. Yeah. Is is that finally VCU said, well, you know, we're losing some but kids. But they started this way. 20 years ago. Yeah. Like, you know, when I was at VCU. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. it went from vibrant scene on Gray Street and then they start enforcing all of this stuff, like what happened to Chuck. You know, they just go after everybody right. that that has the jade elephant, that has twisters, that has all that. It's an old story, but I mean, it, they're they're a double-edged sword. This but VCU, a whole lot of know? what a whole lot of what thrived on Gray Street, uh, it, it it was because it was it was neglected. Right. So so you Benign can neglect. you can do it cheaper there. <laughs> Yeah. And and so you you had the opportunity was there for weeds to grow mm-hmm. and and interesting things to happen, uh, so that allowed for some cool things. Mm-hmm. But it didn't like that was a Shangri La, mm-hmm. uh, you know. It was seedy and run down. And yeah, you could finally when the culture started clashing. No yeah, <laughs> it it I I think VCU had no choice. They yeah. had to do what they did. Mm-hmm. People that are mad at VCU about changing uh the fan I, I i don't agree with that yeah we have to let go i mean we basically just have to let go of stuff like that yeah. i mean it's like crop rotation for pop culture mm-hmm. you know the 
it, it yeah. gets to here and then it has to lie fallow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, riding up here, with... Katie and, and her daughter, Emily. Oh, yeah. I, I told you I'd get her name in. Uh, <laughs> you can't cut that part out. I'm not cutting okay. nothing out. All right. I don't do uh, that. We I'm were talking lazy. about th that neighborhood because we went right through it. And, mm -hmm. and so, uh, but we were talking about some of this very history of how, how it changed. And, and we were, Katie and I were both, both saying, uh, for Emily's, uh, benefit that, that the, uh, <laughs> that what had been there in the old days was never anything that was beautiful. Right. Uh, it, it th there were some cool things that happened, but they happened because of the people that were there, not mm -hmm. really the buildings or the or in some cases the businesses. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the people that ran bars, that ran shops down there, uh, didn't know what they were doing and mm -hmm. didn't even like people much. Right. But but they did all right anyway. They just were selected to be. The they place. were characters. Yeah. It, it, it was very like. I bought in. I started to buy into what I was introduced to in the West End when I went to Marymount. By the time I was like a junior in high school, I started to kind of say, "I'm going to be one more one of these people." And um, and that was, a, I think, a response to like really being that being imposed on me. But when I suddenly, do we are we running short on time? I don't we're, know. We're good. How are we on time, Katie? Um, well, I mean, when do you need for us to go? Oh, well, I mean... Well, I'll be, yeah, okay. I'll be, we'll be wrapping it up here okay. pretty soon. I try not to go too much more than an hour because then the quality is not as good when I yeah. upload it. But um, I I just remember feeling like, you know, this was these were the freaks. Like, I didn't even know how much I needed the freaks until I left uh, Marymount and I came down to VCU and in my sophomore year found my way into all of this stuff that was mm -hmm. I, I got an apartment on monument and really started hanging out at the village and going all these places and and like nobody's judging you right you know you can just be whatever weird combination of crap you are and and this it, you're hanging out with the right. freaks and the freaks every everyone one of us everybody the boundaries existed. were yeah. wider yeah and yeah and i just didn't feel judged i mean i felt really comfortable like am i you know in that thing and that was just a huge do you remember the shelf's drugstore no. That was at the corner of Schaefer and Grace. Uh, later, it was... Uh, was uh, it Vitello's? Uh, uh, Greca. Greca, yes. Remember yes. that? Yes, I remember the Somehow Greca. Somehow I thought you'd remember that Motorcycle, place. topless. There you yeah. go. Uh -huh. There you go. Well, before that, it was, it was an old-fashioned drugstore. And the characters that hung out in there were just... Out of out of some old film noir uh, movie. <laughs> uh, you, you had a, a, an old lady that ran the, uh, uh, the lunch counter. Uh, Franny, and if she didn't like you, she was deaf. Mm -hmm. You just did, she didn't hear you. <laughs> and and the guy that ran the place, Doctor Glick, he just let all of that go on. And so there were people hanging out in there. You had a guy, the Gray Street midget. You had the mm -hmm. flashlight lady who wandered up and down Gray Street, calling for some lost soul that she, with waving this flashlight. Oh wow! And and you had all kinds of characters down there. That's like David that, that Lynch were, noir there. Uh, there you go. Now that's <laughs> what the, that's what it was like in the late '60s mm -hmm. and early '70s. And then you throw in all those hippies, mm -hmm. and and that was an interesting mix. Mm -hmm. But but the flashlight lady and the Gray Street midget. They set the boundaries way out there. 
you know, yeah. you, you were you were somewhere between there. <laughs> yeah, and all the guys that I knew, like, well, not all of them, but the guys that were my friends at that time, they loved bringing people like the flashlight lady and the midget into their houses and being friends with them, and not mm-hmm. ironically, but like mm-hmm. really enjoyed hanging out with them and drinking mm-hmm. with them and stuff. And I think you know there was this sense that like this person is helping me to be free, right. you know? Yeah. Well, there were a bunch of characters in Oregon Hill that wandered around. Yeah, kind of, kind of like Apple that. Butter was the I, one that was I, I don't my know generation. Them all, but, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, the old fashioned Oregon Hill characters mm-hmm. that, that everybody and, in the neighborhood George just put up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and welcome to not only you know, like didn't just put up with, but was just like, yeah, this is great. Yeah. Like, I mean, my friends let Al- Apple Butter. I don't know if you don't remember that no. character. He was. Story is he was uh, a former boxer, and the night before he was supposed to box somebody, uh, he some guys beat the shit out of him with a window weight while he was sleeping, and he like couldn't sleep anymore, and he was all fucked up, and he became an alcoholic, and he just kind of wandered around, and his name was something like Alfred Varder, but when he said it, it sounded like apple butter, and mm-hmm. and uh, and he, and my friends John and Chris let him live in their uh, basement crawl space underneath. Yeah. It. it wasn't really a crawl space. It was like you could. St- kind of crouch and walk yeah. in there. But Do you he, remember the chuck wagon? Yeah, that's yeah. what is Mama uh, Zoo now, right? Uh, or, or is I that... think it was across the street from there. Oh, okay. Uh, but but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I, I never lived over there, but a bunch of bunch of bands back in the 70s uh, mm-hmm. had houses over there. A lot, mm-hmm. of, a lot of the Richmond bands, the punks came out of there. Yeah. And uh, I remember going to uh, see Chuck Wren's band, Faded Rose, at the chuck wagon, which would have been in the mid-70s. So mm-hmm. things were a little less polite at that mm-hmm, point than mm-hmm. they got later. And I'm going in, and Chuck stops me at the door. He says, now, you've got to understand this. Don't look at any of the women. <laughs> and, 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 and I, okay, Chuck. And he stopped me. He said, Ray, I'm serious. Don't look at any of the women. These guys in here will beat the shit out of you. And, and it won't just be one guy. And, and, and so I, I, I listened to a set. I didn't look at any women, and, and, and I don't remember going back in there for a while. But that was a rough spot. Those those guys over there, they stuck together. If you fought one Oregon Hill guy, you had to fight them all. Mm-hmm. It was the same way in in uh, Churchill mm-hmm. growing up. You know, it was you, you. It was like being the gunslinger. If you took on one guy, you had to take on the next challenger the next day. Well, uh, this seems like as good a place as any to. Start wrapping it up. It was really great talking to you, man. I'm sure, like, this is fun. I was interested in more uh, lore, but I think we did a pretty good job of getting a lot of your uh, stuff into a one hour. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, this is fun. Thanks. But much more, uh, much more uh, comprehensive than I have managed in the past. Really? <laughs> Sometimes get stuck on subjects. Yeah. <laughs> and I do too much talking. Well, I, it was it's fun to blow the dust off of some of that stuff. And uh, one of the things that, that uh, uh, an interview or, or something that makes you examine material like that, looking back on it is is it's it uh, it makes me sometimes see consistencies mm-hmm. which makes me feel like i'm a little less crazy yeah and and that's always a good yeah, thing i mean it sounds to me like you know you really have had a pretty you know a straight line in a lot of ways like there's there's a, a current right. running through everything you've chosen to do and it's a understanding of communication through images and a desire to get involved with that also a desire to be subversive but also to understand the medium through which right. you people oppress <laughs> well other I, people I, and, I liked yeah. uh, uh, always liked uh, 
pranks and jokes and things that would make you realize that that people are fooling you all the time mm-hmm. that you ought to look at something twice mm-hmm. you you ought not to buyer beware mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and so i always figured whenever you played a trick on somebody like that and that gave me permission to do it mm-hmm. uh that you'd done them a favor yeah so absolutely. at the biograph and through the slant and, and a lot of the stuff uh, I've always felt like satire and, and playing little jokes mm-hmm. sometimes was the best way to make a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't have to uh, explain a whole lot. Mm-hmm. People can discover mm-hmm. what, what you mean. Yeah, the, the laconic uh, school of humor. Yeah. <laughs> Say as, as much possible with the least amount of words or none. Well, yeah, and, and uh, as you can tell, I, I don't mind talking too much. Mm-hmm. So when something focuses me and makes me cook it down and distill it, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things I like about writing. After I've written about a, a thing, sometimes I know much better why I think what I do about it. Because yeah. it forces me to pull those thoughts together. Mm-hmm. And, part, and parts of you start talking that you don't always listen to. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the deeper wisdom kind of comes comes out when you... Leaks out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And yeah, man, like, you know, you were, you are, you said something about, I don't know if I'm all that relevant. Now you are, you are a part of this ongoing stream of people in this town that are all, you know, have continuously been doing this. Like, you know, this is the new way to post shit on bills. I mean, on, on telephone poles, mm-hmm. you know, now we have Facebook and all of that. Right, That's right. the town square. Uh, yes. But, you know, and, and I'm, I'm very active on Facebook. Enjoy it. Uh, sometimes I, you know, get annoyed with, with things. I'm sure I annoy other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's sometimes not such a bad thing. No, it's great. And I think it's, what's really exciting is that those dudes like the mayor and Richmond Renaissance venture or whatever the hell they are, those guys used to be able to do what they did with impunity. And there wasn't enough communication for people to be able to say, Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. Knock it off. Stop. Stop what you're doing. Well, when I saw that (laughs) loving RVA campaign, that that annoyed me to no end. And (laughs) and and I just felt like, you know, these guys are going to win this time with this lame shit. Yeah. And unless somebody hits back, Mm -hmm. unless somebody that understands propaganda hits it back. Mm -hmm. So I made a promise to myself uh, in December of last year. I, I saw something that inspired me, and I said, "All right, I'm going to do one more thing that, where I'm just going to be, going to be focused, and 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 I'm I'm going to uh, stick with this thing until until it's done, it's fixed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I have the power to do that, but I'm going to try. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what all that stuff on Facebook and the referendum uh, page mm-hmm. and all that uh, that that's what that's been about." Mm-hmm. keeping a promise to myself that I was going to try to do one more thing like that mm-hmm. and use the underground, the, the, the social media, the, use the things that, that you can, the tools that are there mm-hmm. to fight back against people who've got a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know who paid for all that loving RVA stuff. Uh, it's it's kind of mysterious I when you ask it. questions about it. But uh, all- in any event, I think that it has been mocked and neutered Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they've got, got another campaign now, but, but that's the thing is, uh, 
because of VCU, because uh, it's a big city now, Richmond is, the kids are hip. Mm-hmm. You know, th- that stuff didn't fly. Some mm-hmm. people bought it for a week or so and thought, well, you know, look at all this. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot of people that laugh at all that mm-hmm. and, and have turned it back against itself. Mm-hmm. So and I think that's, that's cool. fantastic. It's powerful. And you don't need any money to get as loud as they are. Like, you know, back in the day, you had to have a lot of money to get on right. the radio or TV and you had to know somebody. And now I can do this. Like, right. And this costs nothing. You know, mm-hmm. it costs my internet subscription, and I bought this crap, you know, and, and found some of it, whatever. And so the voice, the, the voice is just as loud. It can you know? be, it can be, and and uh, so uh, I'm I'm glad you asked me to do this. Yeah, uh, I've thanks. enjoyed it, and I look forward to uh, hearing how it uh, turns out. Yeah, and I might use the same picture I used for Chuck since that was that's a good <laughs> picture of you too. Yeah. All right, man. Okay. And that says Terry Ray. So you guys come out and support the Ring Around the Diamond thing, which I don't. We didn't talk, but we did this like two weeks ago, and uh, he hadn't come up with that yet. But it's August third at the Diamond. Come out and encircle it. You know, get over yourself. Do it. Show up. Maybe you can get some barbecue from Buzz and Ed's while you're there. I don't know. Whatever you like. Maybe you don't eat meat. Um, do you like my podcast? Because I can't really tell. The silence is deafening. Every now and then I hear somebody really digs it, but um, I don't know. There's a lot of people I keep fucking asking to do it, and they blow me off. They don't even answer me anymore. Who do you think? You're too good? Too good to come sit in chair and talk? You know? It's not like it's not like you got to pay for it or it's going to embarrass. I'm the one getting embarrassed. You can just come and make fun of me if you need to. You know who I'm talking to. Somebody today asked him if he wanted to be on here, and he suggested that I write a piece about him for RVA Mag instead. What the fuck? What is that? I asked you to come be on my podcast, and you said, no, why don't you do an interview with me and have it published in RVA Mag? So I'm going to come and see his band play, and I say, no, why don't you put down that bass and play a fucking flugelhorn instead? What's up with people, man? I don't think this is great art. I don't think this just it's just fun. Come fucking do it. Stop taking you know, this is me and everything that I've done in this town. You know, I played in a stupid rock band and I knew it was a stupid rock band and I said we need hamburgers and grilled cheese. Not a bunch not every band in this town's gotta be fucking painfully pretentiously hip. We can have just a stupid guitar rock band with fat dudes getting sweaty, you know, being men rocking out. But uh it was really lost on these fucking philistines in this town so anyway yeah whether you're listening to or this or not i'm gonna keep fucking doing it so uh you can take your indifference and shove it up your a-hole and uh so there nah. i'm just kidding namaste all you buds out there miraculous beings shining ones you all are lovely and beautiful and I that which is divine in me recognizes that which is divine in you ooh 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 give me some money make a donation (laughs) 